Uh, Father in heaven, um, as we think about activity and all that happens, uh, we now just uh, settle down. We have um, thought about who you are. You are before us. And we've given you praise for who you are. We've prayed. And we pray again asking that you would help us. And we ask with great confidence. Because you've given us your word, the scripture before us. Your spirit has come, the author of this word. And come and dwells in us. And so we pray now that as we hear this word read, that it will so resonate in us as the very word of God, that it will draw us to it, captivate us. And as we listen to it, that we'll learn how it is to be your people. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Nehemiah, Old Testament book, and chapter 1 please. Nehemiah and chapter 1. And let me read, please, this chapter. This is the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, and Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, And concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who... who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes opened to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, this last line, I was cupbearer to the king, is pivotal in all of history. 
Uh, the, the cupbearer, you know his function by his name, he bears the cup, he takes the cup of wine to the king, which means he's the wine tester, essentially. And that's a very risky but important position, yeah, because, because the king was always worried about terrorists, he was always worried about others who would come and kill him, so he needed someone trusted who would watch over his food to make sure he wasn't being poisoned. And, and so Nehemiah was that one. Now, Nehemiah was a Jew, thus a slave, to this king in Persia, but, but he had this very important position, risky, so he would have a vested interest in the king's well-being, and so he no doubt would keep track of all the terrorists and keep track of the food and the wine and all of that to make sure that he himself wouldn't die, let alone the king. And so, so, so he was very important, but, but what's important here is this Jewish man, Nehemiah, this slave, has this position, which means he, providentially and amazingly as a slave, has access to the king. And that's important right now here in history. Because Jerusalem is once again vulnerable. And the reason that Jerusalem is important in this moment in history is because God has made a promise to bring a deliverer, to bring a Messiah, to bring a crusher of evil through this people. Remember, just very quickly again, can we just do this? That that God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned, and that promise was that he would send one from the seed of the woman, one would come from the seed of the woman, one would come from a woman, and crush the head of the evil one, though his heel would be bruised, right? So that was the promise. And as we read through the scripture, we come to Genesis 12. We find this man, Abraham, who becomes Abraham. And God makes a promise to him, this covenantal promise. God says, this is how I'm going to deal with my people, covenantal. And it's a promise. And he says, from your seed shall come one who will bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. And Abraham had no children, but we know Isaac came and then Jacob and so forth. We know that that people, then as they grew in number, were enslaved in Egypt. And at that point in time, we wonder, is this promise really going to ever be fulfilled? These people are enslaved in Egypt. And of course, God then sends Moses as a deliverer to take them out of, out of Egypt and ultimately bring them into the land. So things are looking up at that point. And God makes covenant through Moses with the people. And he says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will love you. And I will treat you with steadfast love. Meaning, this unbreakable love. And he says, however, in acknowledgement of who I am and who you are in our covenant, then the expectation upon you is that you'll obey me. That you'll love me. Now, the difficulty, of course, is the people sinned. The nation split southern kingdom, northern kingdom. And we know that the sin of the people brought about... Um, the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And we know that the southern kingdom wasn't far behind them. So by 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, was destroyed. And the people were exiled by the Babylonians. Things were looking bleak. And we wonder, will this promise ever be fulfilled? Well, Jeremiah comes with a prophecy that says, don't worry, it will only be 70 years. And as Isaiah previously had made a prophecy about a king named Cyrus that God would raise up as a shepherd, as really a deliverer, as an anointed one, and he would make him powerful, so powerful 
that he would enable the Israelites to return to Jerusalem, which is what happened when the Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539 BC. And so sent back, he did, the Persian king Cyrus, the Israelites to Jerusalem. So a remnant went back. And as they went back, they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the walls, and things are looking up again. Took a while. They were discouraged by outsiders. Took longer than it should have. About 516-ish, 515, 516, the, the, the temple was rebuilt. And by 458, kind of get the numbers going down, we're in the BC era, if you will. Uh, in 458, Ezra the priest finds his way to Jerusalem, is there and sets up real temple worship. And then Nehemiah finds himself in, uh, in, in, in 445 BC getting this word. And now the walls have been burned down. And what that means is, once again, the city of Jerusalem is vulnerable. It's as if anybody can come in and attack them. Someone was able to do this with the walls. And so now that the walls are down, how much easier will it be to just simply enter the, 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 the city and take it over again? Maybe destroy the temple, maybe desecrate it, even worse. And, and so, so the people again are vulnerable. And we wonder, is this people going to be able to stay together and be together so that the promise of God can come to fruition? And, and what we find then in this wonderful, providential, ironic way is that all of this teeters on this slave named Nehemiah who has access to the king. Now, we'll pick that up next week. What I want to do this week is I want to consider Nehemiah as he approaches, approaching the king. Because you see, to approach the king can be a dangerous thing. Plus, it's rather outlandish what he's going to ask for. He's going to ask that he as a slave be given a holiday. (laughs) Slaves didn't have vacation time. He's going to ask that at at least he has a holiday. And he can go back and help his people rebuild the wall around Jerusalem so that the city and the temple will be safe again. And not only that, he's going to ask the king to finance it. Because he has nothing. And his people have nothing. And so he's going to ask the king to finance it, to provide the resources to make this happen. Even after the Persians have already rebuilt the city and the walls once. And he's going to go to the king sometime with that because he must by this point sense this is his calling to return and do this. And so how does he get ready for that? What does he, what does he do? What, how does, what works? But we see how he responds here. Uh, he, he responds by weeping and mourning for days and fasting and, 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 and praying. Now, when you and I, I know when I, when you and I get, get bad news, tragic news, our, our initial response, my, my initial response is to try to figure out how to fix it. Right? What are we going to do? about this. Let's get active. Let's do something about this. And and frankly, sometimes there's stuff we can do. Sometimes problems that we face are fixable because we have the resources to do that. Well, Nehemiah's situation, he was completely vulnerable, had, had nothing really to fix the problem at all. And so he prayed. And I would just say parenthetically, if we find ourselves being able to fix the problem, 
we still should pray and give thanks for the wherewithal to fix the problem. But, but Nehemiah jumps to action, but his jumping to action is different, and that is he prays, begins to pray. Um, he weeps, he mourns, and he does that because he knows the people of God are vulnerable. He weeps and mourns because he knows his people could be attacked and destroyed again. He weeps and mourns because here they are disgraced, and here God is disgraced. Because you see, these, someone came in and, and, and burned down the wall so easily. And the nations around Jerusalem will now mock God, saying, what kind of God is he? He can't even protect his people. I mean, he says he's the great God and the great king above all gods. And the, the people proclaim that, but, but yet he can't even protect them. What kind of God is that? And you do know in the ancient world, and even today if we really think about it hard, that when one nation attacked another, there's a sense in which they defeat their gods. They defeat that which rules them. They defeat that which governs them. They defeat that which protects them. And so, so when another, when that one nation would conquer another nation, if they conquer Israel, they'd say, we just conquered their God. And so, so Nehemiah knows that and he realizes that God is being mocked and it breaks his heart. And so he begins to weep and mourn and fast. No doubt the fasting was Perhaps planned, but may simply have been spontaneous. It may just simply have happened. I don't know about you, but sometimes when difficulties come and I begin to pray, uh, uh, who can eat at a time like this? I mean, nothing else really matters. And so there he was mourning and weeping and fasting and praying. And then what we have laid out for us here is his, 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 his prayer. This is kind of a memoir, if you will. So we get a prayer. It's very orderly. In fact, it's kind of... It's not what I expected. I mean, here's a man weeping and mourning and fasting. And then I read this very logical, reasonable, thoughtful prayer. And I think, wait a minute. And we realize that this is a summary, no doubt, of all that he was praying. Because the time between Nehemiah got this news and he then went to the king was about four months. When we go from the month of Chislev to the month of Nisan. Right? So uh, this took about four months of weeping, mourning, fasting. And this is the prayer that came out of that time. We mustn't necessarily think that there's no time elapsed between verse 4 and verse 5 in the sense that he was weeping and mourning and, and fasting and praying. Verse 5 then is kind of the, the summary of all of that, what, what came out of that, what, what developed out of that, the, sort of the final prayer that he laid down and laid out for us. What I'd like to do today, if God will help us, is to learn something about praying from this incident in the life of, of Nehemiah. In terms of how he did that and how he went about that. And the first thing that I notice here, it is prayer at least turns out to be very thoughtful, very organized, very reasonable. That is, you can see the reasoning behind it. And again, I said that struck me as a little bit odd because he seems so emotional by weeping and mourning and fasting and all of that. But, but a time comes in the midst of weeping and mourning and fasting and, and all of that that we need, if we're going to pray well, that we need to be thinking clearly. The way uh, the Apostle Peter 
puts it is like this in First Peter and chapter 4 and verse 7. Uh, Peter writes this. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So he said, if you're going to pray well, you, you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. That is, you must be clear thinking in order to really pray well. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a way to do that. I want you to know that the end of all things is near. How would you pray if you really believed that the end of all things is near? Would you be worried about getting a big screen TV and praying about that? Right? That's not, that's not a bad thing. But, but how will you pray if you really know that the end of all things... And Peter says, if you get that, then you'll get sobered up. You'll see what's really important. And you'll pray about those things. And the same way here. Uh, Nehemiah becomes, through this process, becomes very, very thoughtful. You remember that there was a time in the life of Jesus and his disciples when they looked at Jesus after he'd been praying, and they said, teach us to pray. And while Jesus would say, pray passionately, pray earnestly, that your emotions should be a part of these praying, it shouldn't just be superficial, you should be a part of this and engaged in this and committed to this and passionate about this, but, but I want to give you an outline to pray, I want you to give a way to think through that. And, and you remember how he did it, he says, our Father in heaven, I want you to begin by focusing your attention upon God and who he is. Now, my tendency when difficulties come is to skip that step. My tendency is to rush right into the situation and say, God, here's the problem, fix it. (laughs) Here's the problem, take it away. I hurt, heal it. I need money, help me get it. I need this, make it show up, you know? So-and-so is in this situation, so so change the situation so that all is well. I mean, I just kind of rush right through that. And I wonder, and I don't know this for sure, but I trust Nehemiah is not that much different than the rest of us. And I wonder in his weeping and mourning and, and, and fasting and praying in the very beginning, if it didn't just rush out like that, God, we got to do something about these walls. Can't we, can't we get these walls up? I mean, the people are vulnerable. Your name is being disgraced. Don't you see it? Can't we? But maybe over time, he said, oh, 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 oh. Maybe there's a better way to think this through. Maybe there's a better way to think my prayer through. Maybe there's a better way so that I'll know what I really should be praying. J.I. Packer, in a book he wrote about Nehemiah's life and um, his prayer life particularly, puts it like this. He says, Nehemiah's walk with God was saturated with his praying. And we'll see that as we read through this uh, book. We'll see Nehemiah stop very often and pray. Little snippets, but praying, and as I said, this time period was quite lengthy. Was saturated with his praying. And praying of the truest and purest kind, namely, the sort of praying that is always seeking to clarify its own vision of who and what God is. So, so the, he, Packer makes the note, and I think he's right here, that, 
that, that real praying, especially praying over time when a situation comes into our lives that doesn't get fixed right away and we realize it's going to be with us for a while. We all have those, right? That problem that can be with us a while may be a besetting sin. It might be difficulties with a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend or a disability or an employment situation or a political situation or something in the world. We go, this is, this is here now. How should I pray about this? doesn't seem to be going away or it seems to be bigger than we can handle. And so how is it that I, I, I should pray about this? And Packer says, and I think he's right, and I think perhaps Nehemiah went through this. In fact, the NIV translators of this passage give that hint because in verse 5, rather than uh, translate the, the little conjunction there as and, the NIV translates as, as, as then. That as he goes through all this process, then he comes up with this prayer. And's probably a better translation, by the way. But, but, but you get this sense of it that there's this time period, this this process, he just doesn't blurt out this perfect little prayer the first time he gets the news. Um, but praying, this kind of praying, the kind of praying we do, and I trust you've experienced this, is always seeking to clarify who God really is, to really get to know him. God, where are you in this? Who are you? And then he says, if you do that, you should then celebrate his reality in constant adoration. And then secondly, once you have this real clear vision of who God is, to rethink in his presence such needs and requests as one is bringing to him. So he says this is the process of, of praying about something over time. We need to concentrate our attention on God, clarify who he is, make sure we're right about who he is and think about that, meditate upon that. And he says, parenthetically, if you do that, you'll spend a little bit of time praising him because he's awesome. And then rethink the situation in the presence of that God. And then begin to ask yourself the question, what is important now? And what should I really be praying? And he ends up Packer does saying that if we do all that, the stating of our of our uh, requests will become something like, "Hallowed be Thy name, Thy will be done, and Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven." Right? Because we'll focus upon God and we'll see, oh, He is the important one. So, so prayer begins really about. It really begins with thinking about God and who he is. Thinking about the very one to whom we're addressing this. Who is he? Who am I talking to? Who is he? And we find when we get there and we think that through, it helps us to have confidence because we find out who he is. Helps us to know that we really do have access access to him. Um, And so we need to give ourselves time. As we pray, it may be helpful to pray with others. Nehemiah did, verse 11, says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name. We don't know this because he doesn't tell us, but we don't know who those other servants were. Were they his friends? Were they gathering to pray together? Were they talking this through and thinking this through about who God is? And did they come then to a prayer like this? Oh, 
well, this is God. Let's think this through. Let's pray this through. This is what God is calling us to because we know who he is and what he's promised. It may take some study time. It may take some time of going through the scripture and reminding ourselves, refreshing ourselves about who God is. So we sit down to pray and don't go right to the situation. But if you have the time to think through who God is, to go to the scripture to find out, to clarify, to give yourself confidence as you, as you pray. In fact, it may be helpful to go to the scriptures to find words that will express yourself, that will express your heart. We've been given the Psalms. And the Psalms enable us, you see, to find words, words God approves, to find words, the Holy Spirit inspired, to find words that will help us express ourselves to God. And again, it shouldn't surprise us that our first thoughts should be about God because those are our best thoughts, right? To think about God are the highest thoughts we can think. What is it in, 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 in the hymn that we pray, uh, we sing, uh, Be Thou My Vision, Thou My Best Thought, by day and by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence, my light. We realize those are my best thoughts. So, so begin thinking about God. Uh, put the situation in Him. Rather than trying to find Him through it. Begin, really, uh, with Him. And you know, that's, that's important because the Westminster Confession uh, defines prayer like this. The shorter catechism does. It says, prayer is offering up our desires to God for things agreeable to his will and the name of Christ with confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. The, the, the Westminster divines tricked us here. <laughs> By that I mean, notice how they put it. Prayer is... Offering up, the des- up, offering up our desires to God for things agreeable to his will. What they're saying is that prayer means that we need to align our desires with his will. Yes, they are our desires, but we must align them to his will. And so, so we learn his will, we learn about him by way of the scripture, and so sometimes it takes time. I know I've worked and been with people for weeks, months, sometimes years to, in a sense, formulate how do we think about this situation? How do we pray about this situation? Oh, we're thinking about it all the time and we're praying about it all the time. But over the course of time, as we look back, we realize that our clarity has gotten better. How we're praying now is way better than how we prayed before because because we have put ourselves, put the situation in God. Does that make sense to you? Sure does to me. You remember Paul's thorn in the flesh. His initial prayer, God, take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. And he ended up praying, may your power be perfected in my weakness. That took some time to get there. But he got there. And he got there by understanding who God was. And he got there by understanding God's grace. So, so Nehemiah comes here, and how does he begin? Oh, Lord. Now, if you have an ESV or an NIV, or probably most of your Bibles, will have LORD in all caps. And the reason it's in all caps is because it translates the name for God, Yahweh. And, and that name, you know, was given to Moses to tell the people 
This is who sent Moses. And you remember that Yahweh means I am. That's his name. I am. Can you imagine that? Here's a being who says I am. What that means is I've always been and will always be. I simply am. I'm not created. I depend on nothing or no one. I simply am. In fact, I'm the creator of all that is. And everything and everyone depends on me. I'm self-existent. Self-dependent. Self-sustaining. I am. Now what's phenomenal and sort of air-sucking about that name? is that God gives that to Moses. And he says, this is the name that my people will know me by. Because I am for them. All that I am, as their God, I am for them. And Moses says, how will we know that we'll be delivered from slavery, from these strong Egyptians? And he said, well, because I am sent you. And I am is stronger than the Pharaoh is. (laughs) And so you can trust me and you can declare that the people will be delivered from slavery. And Nehemiah grabs hold of that name that he's been given as one who belongs to God And he focuses attention there. I am. And so he realizes that since God is I am, and that's the personal name of God given him, that he does have indeed access to God. So so he prays. and, And he realizes then, as he thinks about who God is, he thinks about him. He says, you're great. And and that's that's a wonderful word, but it just doesn't do it, does it? Great. (laughs) Great means greater. Than all. Great means not even on the same page, great. Great means nothing can compare to you. Great means when you look at anything compared to you, it, it looks like nothing. Right? It's a great and awesome. Sadly, we use the word awesome in every other sentence now. And so it's become diluted. But really means awful. That is, full of awe. We look at you and you take our breath away. Again, nothing compares to you. And so you see, as we sit down to pray about things which trouble us, things which are going to be with us for a while, things that we realize we have no solution for, things that are beyond us, things that can't be fixed immediately. And and it seems like God isn't going to fix it immediately. We have to begin to think about who it is we're praying to. Okay, I'm praying to the one who is my God. I'm praying to the one who is everything and he is everything for me. I'm praying to the one who is great and who is awesome. And then he says, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
And he says, so, so I know who you are. You're faithful. You're faithful to everything that you've promised. And, and you're faithful to everything you've promised for those who are in covenant with you, who obey your commandments. And all of that should be giving Nehemiah great confidence because he knows the promises of God. He knows the promise that if you're scattered, if you confess your sins sincerely, if you repent, I'll restore you. And that's the situation. Again, there must be sin in the land. The walls are down. The people are vulnerable. And so Nehemiah says, all right, I know you. You're great and awesome. And so that leads him into confession. And so he begins to confess. And in verse 6, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day uh, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing. The sins of the people of Israel, which we've sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And he says, I I confess my sins, our sins to you. And you get the sense that Nehemiah was a pretty upright guy. And yet he knew himself to be a sinner too. As Solomon said, as the temple was dedicated, everyone sins. As the Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, we lie. The truth is in us, we do. Now the problem with that sin is that God's covenant with them was that I have a covenant of steadfast love with all who love me and obey my commandments. Well, we haven't obeyed your commandments, so what do we do now? And God says, part of my steadfast love is grace and mercy. If you confess your sins, if you repent, if you come back to me, I forgive you and I'll restore you. And so Nehemiah confesses his sin. And again, great confidence. He knows that his position with God isn't based upon even his own obedience. It's based upon God's steadfast love. That steadfast love that forgives repentant sinners. And he knows that. And he knows he comes with nothing. He comes with nothing to bargain with. (laughs) He doesn't say, God, I've, I've been the cup bearer. I've been pretty good at it. I represent you well. People know me, Nehemiah, the praying man, the spiritual man. He doesn't say any of that. He confesses his sins. He says, I've got nothing, God, to bargain with. I've got nothing to coerce you with. I've got nothing to say, hey, you should do this for me or for us. We're sinners. All I have is your promise to forgive sinners and restore them. Because you, I am, have covenanted, promised to deal with us with steadfast love. So he comes and he makes confession of his, of, his, of his sins. And he knows what's been promised by God. So that's the point to us. The point to us is that as we come to pray, we should clarify for ourselves that which is true about God. And then rethink our situation and rethink our requests in light of that. So Jesus taught his disciples, begin our Father who art in heaven. In heaven, the sovereign I am. Our Father, we're special to him. We have a relationship with him. He loves us with a fatherly, steadfast love. So where do we go from there? We're thinking of him. What's the most important thing in every situation? that his name would be holy. 
See, after a while, I realized that it's not so much about me. What I realized is my circumstance is not so much about me, but about God. So God, in the midst of this circumstance, in the midst of the walls being down around Jerusalem, in the midst of this circumstance, God, make your name holy. Glorify yourself. Show yourself here to be great. That's what's important. Whatever happens to the walls, that's what's important. And what's important is your rule, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, yeah. Give me my daily bread. I'm utterly dependent upon you. Forgive my sins. Enable me to be in a relationship with forgiven sinners who receive one another as you've received them by forgiving I'm vulnerable to temptation, so deliver me from it. Keep me from the evil one. Oh, yeah, just in case I forgot. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, always. So this morning, I don't know. I don't know what your situation is. The long-term ones. The difficult ones, the ones that you look at and you say, that scares me. The ones you look at and say, that hurts. The ones you look at for those you love and say, oh, what it would be like. These things that have been nagging and been there and you've prayed about it, God, fix it, and they're not fixed. The things that even haven't happened yet and you're afraid are going to happen because you know they can't be fixed. (sighs) How shall I pray about that? We need to fix our eyes upon God. You remember his covenant the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples. And he says, this cup is the new covenant In my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What's the promise? That sins are forgiven. There is reconciliation with God. He is our father. We have access to the I am. And he is I am for us and his church. How then will we pray? Take a minute just with me. Close your eyes. If that's how you pray. Bow your head and all of that. And think about those situations that perhaps you've been thinking about as I've been talking. Think about the covenant that God made with us through Jesus. Think about who he is. Think about our relationship to him. Now think about your situation in the midst of him. How then 
Will you pray? Father, I pray that you'll take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that Jesus is here with us. Oh, he's not in the bread and not in the juice, but he gave this to us to remind us that he's here, this close to us, to enable us to know that This covenant is a covenant of steadfast love. For God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we know that he loves us. He knows that he's made covenant to promise to be I am for us. We know that though we've sinned, he's forgiven us in Jesus. May that shape everything about our lives, most particularly our prayers. This I pray in Jesus' name.